Hey, it's Daryl. As we get started, I wanted to let you know about a new course that I just released last month, and it is called Helping Others Grow. And if you are interested, uh, I want to give you a special coupon for podcast listeners, and the code is PODCAST21, PODCAST21, and that will get you $10 off the course Helping Others Grow. If you're interested, go to gospelforlife.com, and you can find out more information there. Okay, that's it. Let's get started. Welcome to the Gospel for Life podcast. We help churches make disciples. And now, here's your host, Daryl Dash. Well, thank you for joining us again today. I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Kevin Van Hooser as my guest today. Dr. Van Hooser is a theologian I've followed for a number of years And he's a native Californian who married a woman from France, studied at Cambridge University, taught at Edinburgh University, before settling down in the Midwest to raise two daughters. And he supervises dozens of doctoral candidates and teaches hundreds of students, serving as research professor of systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. I wanted to speak to Dr. Van Hooser about his most recent book, Hearers and Doers, a book that speaks of a kind of doctrine that's full of life and love, and that's critical for disciple-making in the local church. Dr. Van Hooser argues that scriptural doctrine is vital to the life of the church, and the local pastor, theologian, should be the one delivering it to his or her community. Dr. Van Hooser, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me here. It's really good to have you with us, and I've been reading your book. I've, I've read a number of your books now, and uh, you were supposed to come to my area, actually, to uh, speak at Heritage Theological Seminary uh, about a year ago, but COVID got in the way of that. Yeah, I believe that is still on, but it's been rescheduled. Okay, well, I look forward to that. Well, Kevin, you write that everyone is always following someone else's words. So I wanted to ask you, what are some of the words, stories, and images that are discipling us in North America right now? Right, that's a a great question. Let me just start by reminding us about Jesus' comment that we're not able to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out from the mouth of God. That's true, but what if people don't take their bearings from God's word? I think we can generalize Jesus' point, that is, We don't live by bread alone. We live by words that if they don't come from God, they come from somebody else's mouth. And I think that's what we're seeing today. People need some kind of guidance and orientation. You know, how-to books are almost always the most popular books. People are looking to live by somebody's words. And I think this this would be a great topic for a book in and of itself. But I can think of three stories that are forming the spirits of 21st century men and women in the West today, at least three stories. One is a liberation narrative. It's really the story of modernity. I still remember reading the philosopher Immanuel Kant's essay, What is Enlightenment? It was sort of a, a wake up call to the modern world. And he was the one who said to be modern is to cast off the chains of authority and tradition and to think for yourself. So to some extent, we're still living out that story of modernity, you know, becoming more progressive. 
throwing off more and more chains, recognizing less and less authority. So that would be one story, you know, that, that we're in, we're in a, a modern age that is making progress because we're free, basically, from church tradition. So that would be one story. A second set of stories, I think, has to do with how to be well. Uh, I'm thinking not only of dieting books, which are one kind, but there is this new trend to, to be well, wellness involving the soul and spirit as well as the body. There's, it's big business as well. And of course, Christians have had this health and wealth gospel. So even the church has been caught up in this story about human wellness. And then a third story I think people are living by, and this is a very general category, but it's basically about finding your own identity. Carl Truman has written a book recently that looks into this, but the idea that each of us as individuals is a kind of plastic figure, we can kind of reinvent ourselves by exploring this or that aspect, whether it's sex, gender, or something else. So I think I would say those three big stories are ones that lots of people are living by. Of course, there are other options out there. These stories are so powerful and a lot of us aren't even maybe aware that they're influencing us. And maybe a lot of pastors feel like they're not qualified to speak to them. So in light of these stories and these forces, how can pastors respond? Yes, well, the first thing I'd want to say is pastors, I think are responsible for knowing something about these big stories because we're to help our congregations understand the word of God to be sure. But we also want to help people navigate the waters we're in these days. And that means helping people understand the world we live in and, and to do it biblically. But as far as pastors able to respond, they can because the Bible tells us the story of true liberation freedom in Christ. And that liberation narrative, I think, has the power to subvert these false gospels. And then the other thing I would want to say about, you know, wellness or identity, these are humanistic in their orientation. But I would want to say that, that pastors should be confident that the only good humanism is a Christian humanism, because Jesus Christ is fully human. He's the paradigm of what we want to be as human beings. So I, I would encourage pastors to think of themselves not as experts in contemporary trends, but as helping people to become culturally literate, minimally, just to, to know basically what's going on here, but then also helping people to become biblically literate, that is, able to follow the big story of Scripture. And I don't think we should underestimate the power of sermons. The problem is we only get to preach once a week, most of us. And uh, so we need to use that time well. But Jesus taught in parables, which were stories that subverted the stories that people were living by during his day. And I think pastors should see themselves doing something similar. When we preach the gospel, we're preaching the gospel, yes, but we're also subverting all those false gospels that are out there. We're calling out false stories and idols and ideologies. 
So I, I just don't want pastors to underestimate the power of the ministry of the word done in a context where we're praying for the Holy Spirit's illumination and guidance. You know, I've noticed a temptation to de-emphasize doctrine sometimes, and uh, I, I don't think that pastors would say that out loud, that they don't want to teach doctrine, but I think there's such a push to being practical and and offering things that people can take home. And without wanting to create a false dichotomy, I just sense this pressure sometimes that doctrine belongs in the academy. And when pastors get up and preach, we just need to be practical. Why is doctrine essential to discipleship? Thank you for this question. <laughs> I do know pastors who say bad things about doctrine. And there's a, a kind of a general feeling out there that doctrine divides. And if we're to be peacemakers, let's stay away from doctrine. But increasingly in my own teaching, I've been insisting that doctrine matters for the church. And I, I actually tell my students, look, if you think I'm off on a doctrinal rabbit hole that has nothing to do with practical ministry, stop me, call me on it, force me to show you how it's practical. But in general, my strategy is to argue if doctrine isn't somehow involved in the process of making disciples, then it's defective. So that puts the onus on me as a theologian to show that doctrines are indeed practical. So how are they practical, you ask? I think one way they're very practical is they help us understand what the Bible is talking about. Because it's a, on the one hand, it's a, it's a book, a storybook, children can read it. But when you begin asking questions about it, you discover, well, what Karl Barth calls its strange new world. <laughs> and I don't think he was referring to the fact that it's an ancient world. I think what's strange about the Bible's world is that it's all about our being in Christ. And this to me is the important thing that doctrine helps us fill out. I, sometimes I actually define theology as the task of saying what is in Christ. And I like that because in philosophy, metaphysics, the study of reality is the study of what is. But I like to think of theology as the study of reality, what is in Christ. And that's even more real than what the scientists study because in Christ is the beginning of a new creation. So that's part of what I would want to say. Doctrine helps us understand the real world and the, and the strange world of scripture, what it is to be in Christ. The other thing I would want to say, and again, I think people have a, oftentimes a misconception of what a doctrine is, but I want to say that Christianity is not a system of ideas. It's not an ideology. It's not a philosophy. I've argued in another book that it's a drama, a way of living, a way in which God has entered into our world. So doctrine to me is a help to understand what God has done. And doing again is dramatic. The Greek term drao means to do. So I think the Bible is the story of God's doing, a theodrama. And doctrine teaches us both about what God has done and about how we should respond to that. In other words, what do we have to say and do to correspond to what God has done, is doing, and will do? 
And so I think drama, and I'm, so I haven't forgotten your question, because doctrine serves the project of making disciples, because it helps us understand what God has done, and it helps us understand how we can participate in it. So doctrine tells disciples what they need to know about what God has done so that they can say and do things that would be to his glory and correspond to what he's done in Christ. Your whole notion of theodrama was so life-changing for me to, to recast my uh, how I see my role as a pastor of helping people locate themselves within the larger story that God is a God story, right? And how to play their part within it. That's so, so helpful. And that leads me to asking you, there are so many different models of what pastoral ministry is all about. I remember a businessman once telling me that it's not my fault. Uh, I just didn't get it because I don't understand business. And wow. implied in that was that churches really should operate as businesses and that pastors are maybe at a disadvantage because they, they were trained in seminary and didn't really have a, a good understanding of how to operate things that, the way they should be. So we have this image of pastors being maybe CEOs or entrepreneurs. And in your writing, you really talk about the role of a pastor as pastor theologian. Why is it important that pastors see that role as being important? Uh, again, really important question. Let me just set it up by, by talking about a book called Metaphors We Live By. That was an influential book, not by Christians, but, the, but their idea was that metaphors matter. The pictures we have in our head of what we're doing, they matter because they structure the way we think about what we're doing. So for example, in the United States, we say time is money. And that's a metaphor that structures people's lives, right? We, we talk about spending time or wasting time. And if that's the picture in our mind, we're going to live a certain way. Well, I want to write a sequel to that book. I want to write a sequel that's called Metaphors We Minister By. Because as you said, there are these pictures that get lodged in our minds of, say, what a successful leader looks like. And I, this is a, a serious question. When, if, we're, if I'm a pastor and I want to do excellent work, what's, my, what's the picture in my mind that defines success? Is it a CEO? Is it a, is it a therapist? Is it a comedian? You know, I think there's some pastors who have stand-up comedian maybe as you know, one of their paradigms. But uh, all of these images that are very popular in our culture and our images for leadership somewhere, I think all of these images tempt us to exchange a pastor's birthright for thin gruel. It doesn't really fit. Uh, Eugene Peterson has done a lot of good work on this as well, and he regrets very much the encroachment, I guess, of the business metaphor into the church. So the metaphor I like and I've used it as a title of a book, is that a public theologian? Is it a metaphor? Maybe it's just a literal description, but it's a picture. And I think pastors are theologians because they're there to help people understand God and all things in relation to God. And they're public theologians because they're ministering understanding to people, <laughs> everyday people, not professionals, not academics. 
I also like other pictures though. I like the image of a pastor as a doctor in the church. Doctor has a nice double meaning. It, it could mean one who teaches, but it also could mean one who is concerned with health. And I think that is exactly what a pastor does. A pastor is concerned with the health of the body of Christ. And one way to preserve the health of the body of the Christ is to teach God's word. So I liked, I like the image of the pastor as the church's primary care physician. Maybe that's not exactly right. I guess Christ and the Holy Spirit are the primary care physician. We're secondary care physicians, or maybe we're just nurses, but <laughs> I think you get the meaning. This is so helpful. And it really brings up the whole role of imagination in the Christian life. And I know you, you piggyback on some of Charles Taylor's thought about the social imaginary. So could you unpack a little bit about the role that imagination plays in living the Christian life? Yeah. And again, here, I think I have to uh, address a picture that people might have in their minds of the imagination. Um, let me say straight away, I see the imagination as a cognitive capacity, that is a kind of reasoning. We have analysis is a kind of reasoning that takes things apart into little pieces and examines them and how they fit together. But the imagination goes in the opposite direction. I like to think of the imagination as reason in a synthetic mood. That is reason putting things together to see how they fit. And you need imagination to see the big picture. And for example, if understanding uh, a story or something else is a matter of finding out how the parts fit into the whole, you need imagination for understanding. So I, I view imagination as a cognitive faculty that makes connections between things and thus discerns meaningful patterns. I, th I see imagination as the ability to think in terms of a big picture. Now I know there are vain imaginings and this is the picture I think that many people have of the imagination. It's a kind of um, visual capacity that sees things that aren't there. <laughs> that sounds delusional. And I think sometimes the, the King James version of the Bible, when it talks about imaginings, it's almost always in this negative sense, which is why the term vain qualifies it. And so I want to say straight away, there is such a thing as vain imagining, but then I would want to insist there's also such a thing as virtuous imagining. So we've already talked about metaphors and stories. These are simply forms that the imagination takes. So I think the imagination is at its best and serves the project of theology and discipleship when it allows us to see the big picture, uh, what I call the theodrama, the story the Bible's telling. And it is a big picture, right? Because it's the story of what God the Father is doing and God the Son through God the Spirit to make all things new. It, it takes imagination to see how that all fits together. So that's why I think it's crucial for pastors to address it and for disciples to use it to figure out how they fit into, into the story. So I actually like to speak about the evangelical imagination, which is the ability to 
indwell, to live in the story of the gospel, even if we can't empirically see it with our five senses all the time, because imagination can be related to faith. In Hebrews 11, faith is defined as the conviction of things not seen, but they can be grasped together. And so that's why I have a very strong appreciation as a theologian for the imagination. Jesus doesn't tell us not to use images. He tells us to take them captive to the gospel and the imagination can be a means of doing that. In your book, I, I love how you tackle one of the predominant images and forces that shaping us today, which is one of fitness. And then you use that image of the pastor as a fitness trainer to, in a different way, you're, you're kind of borrowing the cultural image of uh, a fitness trainer and then saying, actually, we can reimagine the pastor's role in a way as being uh, a bit of a fitness trainer. So unpack that. What do you mean by that uh, kind of image? Yeah. Well, you're right. Uh, fitness is all the rage. It's big business. There's many different kinds of fitness, but there's programs everywhere, right? People care about this for our health and so on. Um, well, the reason I see a connection is that, as we've already said, the church, and this is a metaphor the New Testament uses, by the way, uh, the church, the Bible calls the body of Christ. And so, if you just run with that metaphor for a while, the next question is, so what kind of shape is it in, <laughs> you know? And what's striking to me is um, there's so much concern for physical fitness, but what about the spiritual fitness of the church? But again, staying with the metaphor of physical fitness, the core is foundational for what we do with our physical bodies. And so, you know, you, your exercises for the core and the core is crucial or it is the core because the body depends for anything it does on the core. And so if we think about that, and if we think about the church as the body of Christ, then we have to ask, well, so what is the core of the church? What, what is the foundation for all its bodily movements? And not only that, we also have to ask about fitness, because when I was researching this, I, I discovered that you, it's hard to define fitness. You have to specify fitness for what? That is, for what purpose? And the ancient gymnasiums in ancient Greece, they had an understanding that fitness was about preparing citizens for war. That's not how we think about it today as a rule, although the US Army has invested a lot of money in studying the fitness of soldiers. But again, we've been talking about metaphors. Well, let's remember that Paul in Ephesians 6 does say that our struggle isn't with flesh and blood, but with cosmic powers and spiritual forces. And in the pastoral, he talks about training yourself for godliness. And, and that's it, you see. I think the purpose for becoming fit as a body of Christ is godliness. <laughs> and well, what does that mean? I think, I think a fitness has to do with 
being able to do all things through Christ who strengthens us. But I actually would want to say we can tie both the physical picture of fitness with that ancient Athenian view of preparing citizens for, for battle if we remember that we're fighting against powers and principalities. And so what should concern pastors is the fitness of their members for gospel citizenship, training for a different kind of war. It's not Athens, it's Jerusalem, right? We wanna be citizens of Jerusalem. We wanna be citizens of the gospel. So I think disciples are fit for their citizen purpose when they know how to act as representatives of the kingdom of God, speaking and doing things that Christians should be doing. I'm picturing a pastor right now who, as we're recording this, it's a Monday, maybe they're feeling a little bit tired. It's been a tough year of, of ministry with COVID and all the political controversies swirling around. And then you've got the normal pressures of pastoral life and Maybe a pastor is listening to this thinking, this is good, but I'm struggling with how do I do this? How do I create a culture of discipleship within the church in the mess of real people and real problems? So what encouragement would you offer to such a pastor who's struggling with creating that culture and um, that, that desire for discipleship within the local church? Well, look, I've never said it was easy. <laughs> I've said that it's easier teaching theology in a classroom than it is being a pastor because pastors have to work with real people. I guess the encouragement would be that the word of God is powerful. So I don't think pastors should feel that all the burden is on their own personal efforts. If you read the book of Acts, the word of God is multiplying and sort of taking territory captive it, just because it's been faithfully preached and handed on. And so I think realistic expectations of what God does and what the pastor does helps. But look, also take, take some time here. You know, you're not going to create a culture overnight. I think the, the, uh, maybe a better analogy is to think about your family life. You know, families cultivate traditions over time. And tradition matters because a tradition really is a way of continuing a story. And that's what pastors are trying to do. You're grafting people, you're introducing people to a story, which is the story of the family of God. And you're asking them to become mature. And maturity takes time. And hopefully you'll see some progress. But that's the huge privilege of being a pastor is that you are shepherding a, a part of the family of God, passing on traditions that have been handed on to you, just as Paul says to Timothy. And it is going to take time, but it's not something that humans alone have to do. So I just think if, it, if you feel overwhelmed, just remember that you're not supposed to know everything about everything, but you're supposed to understand the gospel and the gospel can transform everything. And so I think just focus on what you've been called to do to minister the gospel in word and, and in deed. And with the Holy Spirit, we trust that the word will multiply where you are. I want to ask you a couple of personal questions if you're open to that. What are you learning right now? Well, I think my LinkedIn site 
identifies me as a student of theology, so it's a good question. But my learning goes in many diff different directions. I'm, I'm always trying to study some part of the Bible. I'm also always trying to study or get up to speed on some part of the history of theology. And I'm always trying to keep up with what's happening in contemporary culture. And then what's exciting to me about theology is bringing those three streams together. Um, they're not equal, right? I'm, 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 reading, I'm reading about uh, theology and the tradition in order to understand the Bible, and I'm reading the Bible to understand my present. But I'm learning all sorts of things all the time, it seems. Uh, at the moment, I'm focusing on biblical interpretation and trying to make, uh, well, trying to retrieve things from the Reformation and just after the Reformation, patterns of reading the Bible that I think we need to recover to bring about a kind of peace talk <laughs> between disciplines that have grown apart, exegesis and systematic theology. So I'm trying to learn how to be a peacemaker between exegetes and theologians, which sounds odd when I say it, but the only reason, again, that we're at odds is that um, you know the disciplines in the modern university have gone their separate ways, and that that division does not serve the church. Uh, so that I'm, I hope I'm learning things about that. <laughs> well, one of the things about your role is whatever you're learning probably will end up in a book in some form, and we will end up the beneficiaries of that. So I appreciate your learning, your uh, continual learning as a student. I want to ask you, what's encouraging you right now? Uh, yes, well, you know, there are encouraging things, and I know we've had a difficult year with the pandemic, but uh, again, we've talked about the big picture, and if I step back and look at trends, say trends from when I started studying at seminary, I am encouraged by several big trends that I, in my little faith, wasn't sure would, that I'd ever see. One is, and this is maybe a selfish thing, but uh, it's a renewed interest in my discipline, systematic theology. I think there's been a kind of renaissance in my discipline. And for so long, it seemed to be kind of subservient to philosophy and so on. I wasn't sure I would see it, but systematic theology has come into its own in a new way in this time. And I am encouraged as well by signs that there is a healthy dialogue between biblical studies and systematic theology. I think because it has come into its own and isn't subservient to philosophy. So that's been deeply encouraging because I'm a theologian who wants to be biblical and I have lots of exegete friends. And so when, and I've just been encouraged by how that dialogue has been coming. I think I'm also encouraged by what I see a movement to form multi-ethnic churches because I think this is very much part of the gospel, the news that the dividing wall of hostility that separated Jew and Greek has come down, but it also has to come down between all the other uh, ethnic tensions. And so this is part of the gospel and this is dramatic. I think it's a way of living out the reconciliation that is in Christ. So I've been encouraged. Obviously we have a long way to go, but I'm, I, my hope would be that churches could be at the forefront of some of these conversations. And then the, the last trend that I'm encouraged by, and I, I really am encouraged by this, 
is the new interest in being pastor theologians. I've been involved for several years in something called the Center for Pastor Theologians. And I just think this is a wonderful development. And it's, it's, it's the next generation. It's people younger than me, for the most part. That means it'll last longer than I will. But I've been very encouraged that there's a, a good number of people from, a, from various churches. It's not, it's not confined to one denomination that uh, have recovered, but I think is the authentic role for the pastor, and that is the theologian in, a, in that person's local place. Well, I am very grateful that you are somebody who has a passion for pastors. And uh, speaking as, as a pastor, I know in all your writing, I just sense uh, you write for the academy and uh, you also write for the church. And a lot of your writing, I, I think I even pick up within your ministry talking to you today, uh, you care for the local church, you care for pastors and their role. And so today you've helped us understand a bit of our role. You've reinforced a uh, some of the things that maybe we've forgotten and need to be reminded of, and you've, you've helped us reimagine our role. So I want to thank you for that because uh, we, I don't take that for granted. And uh, it's a, a gift to have a theologian uh, who loves the church and wants to serve the church. So I appreciate that in your writing as well. well thank you, Daryl, for your interest. And again, for the invitation to let me share my vision. I hope that uh, if listeners have not picked up any of uh, Dr. Van Hooser's books, they'll check them out. Uh, are there any that you would especially recommend for a pastor? Well, the one you mentioned earlier, Hearers and Doers, because that's a pastor's guide to making disciples. And then if you did want to explore the theatrical analogy a bit more, there is a book called Faith Speaking Understanding. And then if you're interested in the imagination, there's a book of essays that I, that I did plan to, or that I've shaped them so that they make a, a coherent whole, but it's all about the imagination and theology. And that one's called Pictures at a Theological Exhibition, Scenes of the Church's Worship, Witness, and Wisdom. Excellent. Well, thank you, Dr. Van Huser, for joining us today, and thank you for your ministry as well. You're very welcome.